Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. Hello, glad you could join us today for the Good Life Podcast. I am Matt Carpenter, and I'm grateful today to have Dr. Miles Smith. He is a lecturer in history at Hillsdale College, which many of you are quite familiar with Hillsdale. He has written for uh, Ad Fontes and uh, online scholarly American um, history, political philosophy uh, journal, uh, and also the American conservative, First Things, National Review. And today we're going to talk about several elements related to his chosen field, history. So uh, thank you, Miles, for joining us. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me. So talk about first your background, just growing up, uh, how you came to faith and, you know, what, where did you come from, from, you know, early life to now? Yeah, my stories, uh, I think I'm very grateful for how boring it is. Um, and I really do mean grateful. I was raised in the Southern Presbyterian church, um, which, most people think of as the PCA, um, <laughs> a little bit different uh, back then. It wasn't quite as um, it was. A, it was more, um, I guess, what you call sort of mainline in its feel of how um, not in its theology, but there wasn't as much kind of evangelical stuff. There wasn't as much contemporary worship. So I, I, I grew right. up in a in a church that sang a lot of hymns and uh, was kind of you know boring, waspy, conservative. Uh, Presbyterianism. Um, my dad was a ruling elder. Um, my mom was is a, a devout Christian woman. They still are. Um, and so my story is being a sort of a son of the South and a son of the Presbyterian Church, and and lived, grew up in an oldish town uh, in southern uh, in the, <clears throat> excuse me in North Carolina. Um, I'm from Salisbury. That's where I was reared, and so I still kind of claim that I haven't lived there in a very long time. I, my hometowns I generally claim is Salisbury or Charlotte, which was just down the road uh, from us, but uh, that was that was my story. I was raised by Christian parents um, in a in a Bible believing church, and uh, was uh, very thankful for that. I grew up um, never really having a struggle uh, with with the faith. I think my my questions about the gospel came later, um, but they were never the they, there was never a question over um, whether the gospel. Was, was was good or not, or whether it was something that was worth believing or not. I think that those questions typically in your 20s, you're kind of asking, okay, what does actually belief mean? Now, you've had belief, so what do you do with it as an adult? But I'm very grateful that I've, I've never, um, I never struggled with believing. Uh, I, I can tell you I'm not always a person of tremendous faith. I need, I need help on that a lot. I don't think that's an unusual uh, struggle. No. Uh, oh, help my unbelief is a prayer that we know right. in the scriptures. And so I think everybody confronts that. But no, I'm very grateful. My, my story is uh, very boring. I'm uh, the son, grandson, and great-grandson of Presbyterian ruling elders. Um, I am an officer in the church. I'm just not an officer in the Presbyterian church. So I, I, broke, the, uh, I, I broke the family streak uh, there. So Good. Good. So... In your background, of course, you, you lecture in 
history. So tell us, you know, tell us how did you develop an interest in history? I, I think some of it was just where I grew up. I grew up in a little bit of an older city. Salisbury was a city that has its roots in the early 18th century. So I had Civil War history, and there was a lot of old buildings around. My family had been there a while. So I think I just grew up kind of cooked in to the fact that I was not, um, that my own time was not the only time, that things had, had happened before. My great-grandmother was alive until I was nine. Um, mm. And I knew her. We went to, I went to church with my great-grandparents. Um, my great-grandmother was born in, 18, in the spring of 1898. Um, and so knowing her, um, I think, and knowing my great-grandfather, he, he died when I was seven, um, knowing both of them really, uh, I think, allowed me to sort of sense that, okay, there was, there was a time before the time I knew. And so to think historically was never a particular challenge. I think it is a challenge for some people, especially like so many Americans who live away from family and we live away from where our roots are. Um, but uh, for me, that was that kind of came second nature, not because of any particular brilliance on my end, but just because that was my circumstance. Um, I grew up with history. And uh, when I went to college, I went to the College of Charleston. Charleston's a very old historical city. So I think it was easy to think about um, history as something that was lived and something that was inherited and something that wasn't really dead either. Okay, good. So tell us then, what is your specialty in history, what, what what is your area of concentration when you when you did your your masters and then later your your PhD? So I think when I went to the College of Charleston, one of the big things that you would see in the era um, that I was there in the first decade of the twenty first century, there was a big focus on Atlantic history um, and uh, the idea of the Atlantic world, and so a lot of that meant you would look at um, ideas and folkways and food um, and kind of clothing, sort of anything that might have been exchanged in the Atlantic Basin. And what that really means is the North Atlantic Basin. So that took in the eastern United States, and my interest was the southeastern United States, the Caribbean, uh, the northern, the Caribbean part of South America, Western Europe, and then parts of West Africa as well. And so I'm, I was really a, a trained in sort of in, in, to be interested in the Atlantic world. Um, but what I teach mainly is 19th century uh, U.S. classes. Every once in a while I teach Latin America. Um, but that's mainly what I do is the history of the 19th century uh, United States. So that's, that's kind of uh, my, my duties here on campus are uh, really, really tend to, tend to be more about that. All right. So is there anything in particular that you love about that period? What, what is it that you find most interesting about that era of history and, and this geographically this, this part? I mean, we live in the, in, in the eastern part of port, you know, east of the Mississippi. So, so what is it that draws you to that? So I think some of it was um, there's a real sense of civilization being grown. 
and uh, people being able to really see the construction of an entire civilization in a very quick amount of time. And sort of, you know, you sort of think about what it meant then for the United States and for Americans as a people to commit themselves to certain social, intellectual, and religious ideas and practices and to see them implement those uh, in, a, in a generation or two. And what you realize is it's actually really remarkable how fast they're able to, to grow a pretty substantive and pretty healthy civilization. Um, so I think that that really was is what's gotten me interested recently, sort of seeing civilization grow. I live in the Midwest now, and so seeing that people really hacked a civilization out of a wilderness in a span of about 30 years. So that, that seems to be remarkable. And so I think my interest has been more recently looking at how social and religious ideas in particular had a role in the creation of that civilization. Um, because that's really what they're building, not really just building a town or a farm. They're building something they think has this kind of big civilizational aspect to it. I know a lot of your, your recent work at Ad Fontes is, it focuses on early, early 20th century, late 19th and early 20th century religious development but not solely religious development, but how, you know, the, the relationship of religion and culture and government and education, how all those things are, they're not a bunch of, you know, distinct Kantian categories that, that, that we can pretend that live in the abstract. They all were enmeshed from the, from our colonial origins, pre-colonial origins to, to now. So that's, I've enjoyed seeing, you know, your work and, and also uh, the, the work of others that emphasizes that. Yeah, I think that the big the big point you make that's absolutely right is that people didn't do these things as disjointed. Um, everything was kind of really a part of an organic whole: religion, education, the family, um, uh, children. All these things I think were seen as having sort of a necessary uh, consequence for for human life, and all those consequences were tied together. Um, I think folks understood that whether they might be uh, pious or not, for example, whether they were particularly interested in religion or not, that religion had a, had, had a role to play in society. Um, and so uh, same way with, with education, whether people wanted their kids to learn you know, Latin or, or Greek or something like that, they understood there was a benefit so uh, there was a real sense that these were things you had to do to maintain society, that society needed appropriate guardrails, and, and uh, early America, the early republic, uh, was a place where they found those in uh, surprisingly traditional ways, um, especially through religion, society, the family, things like that. So what I hear you saying is we were not just uh, a slightly Western equivalent of the French desire to, to have a purely enlightened society free of religion then? Well, I think what's interesting is that um, the United States was so broad, you could, you could find that. Um, right. For sure. Uh, in parts of Virginia, parts of the northern cities, the south was less religious than the north in the era. Um, the Bishop of, of Virginia in the 1850s and 60s was a man named William Meade. 
and Bishop Mead once mentioned how little religion, how everybody at William and Mary in 1805 and 1810 was an atheist. Mm. Lyman Atwater in his uh, short biographical memoir of Charles Hodge talked about the irreligiosity at Princeton uh, for uh, when really while Hodge was in school. And so I think what what um, it's worth thinking about is that none of this stuff maps on perfectly to the whole practice of the United States, but in as much as people believe that they were sort of bound to uphold some civilizational boundaries, they did not view themselves as sort of um, inheritors of, of the French Enlightenment, for sure. But uh, there were there was there was a, a lot of um, a lot of sympathy for, for those things. So in in many ways, the United States was at once more Christian and less Christian uh, than we assume in the era. Right. Uh, so. It, it reminds me a little bit of uh, Barry Allen Shane's The Myth of American Individualism in his points that we are not, I mean, so he says that, that you know, and I, I know you're familiar with, with, with his work, but that we were not at our roots, you know, that just everyday common people were, were not as influenced by rationalistic thinking as some of those who were the aristocratic elements in, in our society. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's probably, probably true. I think again, it's hard to map. Um, there is no really one American people. There's, I think what I would distinguish is there's perhaps an American civilizational boundary, the same way there was European civilizational boundaries, but it, it would be wrong to say that there was an American people in the era in the same way that one might say there was a European people in mm. the same era. Um, okay. Yeah. So you really, Americans are a pretty, uh, very diverse bunch, um, uh, in the era. And so, uh, they all operate. I like this. I use the term boundaries with my students for this reason. They all operate within certain boundaries and the boundaries of that civilization are, are still relatively Christian. Um, right. The early Republic. But they don't all practice Christianity the same way. They don't all think about it the same way. They don't all interact with it with it necessarily the same way. But the boundaries of civilization are still relatively Christian. Uh, you know. Right. Right. So, C.S. Lewis, I know somewhere said that the world does not need more Christian literature. What it needs is more Christians writing good literature. And, of course, the same would apply to the study and teaching of history. So, in the opinion of Dr. Miles Smith, what makes a good historian? I think what makes a good historian is a commitment to pursuing truth in their craft without an immediate... Um, without an immediate social consequence from the truth that you're writing. So a good example is, I can use kind of a left-wing example and a right-wing example. Um, I, if I'm teaching a group of, of, of progressive students, I might very, very uh, truthfully say that there was obviously a deep problem with the United States' interaction with race and slavery in the early republic in the 19th century, and those were historical ills and historical tragedies. Um, I would not necessarily think that that carries over 
to them going out and doing some iconoclastic tearing down of a statue or dismantling of, of a public commemoration of some sort. The same way with the right-wing student, I don't think it necessarily uh, means that uh, if we talk about uh, the insustainability of certain social constructions like uh, no-fault divorce, I, I don't think what it means is every right-wing student needs to become a marriage activist. Um, and so I, I, think, I think that the craft of history has consequences uh, in that we learn things, but I think the true historian is sort of still able to say, okay, um, that this might be the case doesn't mean this needs to carry over immediately to some sort of social action. I think in this day and age, that's what sort of distinguishes a historian from an activist. So a historian is, by necessity, one who wisely reports history. And to some degree, must inter... I mean, everyone has an interpretation. Right. But, but you know, there's a difference between, or there should be a difference between a reporter and a pastor preaching on Sunday morning who yeah. gives immediate application or should give application of some sort to the people, whereas a history teacher doesn't necessarily cast uh, a, a vision for what everyone should now do because X, Y, and Z are true. Absolutely. So we're called professors for a reason that we profess... Um, it's a declarative act. We profess that this is a truthful narrative of what happened in history according to the best primary sources um, and, and, and additionally secondary sources we can find. So we really we profess. Um, okay. We, we, uh, that's our charge, I think. That's, that's, that's what our vocational charge is. There may be um, some usefulness to society uh, in, in what we do, but our first foot usefulness should probably be even to our own profession, um, which again, sounds a little bit uh, in insular and, and intellectually incestuous. I don't think it is because history is always hopefully correcting itself. Right. In a more accurate narrative of what it actually is. So. Which I guess also requires a, a good deal of humility. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think humility, we, we all stand on the shoulders of giants. Everything I write is, 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 is uh, owed to uh, skills that were taught to me by someone else, works that were, um, that was guided to by, by, by my professors, and then they learned, taught me how to seek out other sources. So absolutely, humility is a huge part of what makes uh, a good historian. Okay. A lot of the people who listen, I know, to, to this podcast are are in education or homeschool their children or, or things like that, and they desire to to present well and to, 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 to grow and improve as teachers. So with that in mind, what is the just the term historiography is used and i know speaking for myself in getting an undergraduate degree with a concentration in history i never once heard any professor 
mention historiography. So tell us, what is that, and, and, and how does it inform the craft of a historian? Yeah, the historiography, probably the easiest way to say it is, is the study of the study of history. Um, you are studying the conversations about history that have happened in books that have gone before you. So a great example is um, historiography is me learning about uh, the sort of development of historical consensus about a specific topic. So let's say I'm thinking about the American Revolution. If I'm going to learn the historiography of it, I'll learn about books written about the American Revolution right after it happened. And then some written in the early uh, part of the 19th century, and then the middle of the 19th century, the late 19th century, the early 20th century. So you kind of trace the development of the subject right up into um, your own time. So that's 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 really historiography. You're studying the study of a particular topic. Okay. So for those who, who are who are practicing this, what are some fallacies you often encounter when with say with students and and, and even when you're interacting with other teachers? What what are fallacies of preparing and teaching history, or in, and also in studying history. I think the um, uh, a tendency is that we think that every lesson needs to have a point or a moral to it, um, and those things are valuable in as much as they're things that human narrative have always included in, in, in sort of stories about heroes and, and the grand sort of grand epics but the pursuit of history doesn't meet, need an immediate moral or an immediate sort of resolution to a historical problem and so i think learning history means sort of setting aside this understandable very human need of resolution or a moral or a sort of uh, a morality tale and studying history for what what happened um, Everybody, I think, or people left, right, and center, want to have morality tales given to them, and they want to have a quote-unquote useful history. I think the true the true study of history means you're sort of not going to look for a morality tale or or a certain specific historical resolution within your narrative, because by doing that, you kind of have ideologically created a story uh, on your own that you're right. in, in sort of imprint onto whatever you're learning so the search for a morality tale the search for a moral of a story the search for a sort of resolution is actually a sort of a, a a human imposition on the historical record so this reminds me a little bit of herbert butterfield's uh book on the Whig view of history i mean is that yeah. That, that, that is what he points out, right? Very much consistent with, with that book. And it's, it's, it's obviously great that you bring it up. You're, you're an educated man. Uh, obviously, you know, uh, Butterfield's um, complaint, as it were, is that by viewing the, the history through the, through the lens of Whiggishness, and Whig history is the idea that history sort of inevitably bends to a certain sort of 
you know, uh, liberal, small L liberal, small D democratic, small C capitalistic society a la the United States and England. Um, that, of course, what they're doing is imposing uh, Whiggish American or Whiggish British views on history that may not actually be there. Um, and so very much exactly what Butterfield's complaining about. So is there a line, though, because I remember reading the first time I, I read his book, and th there was internally something in me that thought, I agree, but we do have to make some moral judgments when, I mean, and I know, I know you're not arguing against making moral judgments, so I'm, so I'm, not, I'm not saying that, but I, I know when, when reading him, I appreciated his corrective, but I thought, you know, there are certain things that we, we can't be 100% objective or, or dispassionate about. Yeah, I, I think, um, I think the question, of course, is that um, the, the, the historian's pursuit of being dispassionate um, I don't think it was, um, I don't think it is necessarily a moral ambiguity. It's, it's, it's a, it's sort of about a methodology. Um, okay. So one, but, and I think that the, what we might also say is there's certain things I think people will sort of think about with, you know, especially coming from gender and, and uh, changing sexual norms. Um, they, my guess is a, a true historian probably isn't going to, challenge those paradigms um being challenged historically received paradigms like that because it's really not the point of history to think about well, uh, you know the questions of um, you know uh, gender conflation or, or something like that i mean historians we operate on fairly traditional paradigms so i think that uh, really the 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 fear over that amoral histori historiography is probably a new one um, and something that really doesn't, uh, especially for traditionally trained people, it hasn't really come in, in, into play much. Uh, and I don't know how much, at least in scholarly writing, it still comes into play, uh, maybe in popular writing. But I, th I think that scholarly, scholarly historiography is still a relatively traditional uh, field um, in some ways. Now, that may change and, and as, 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 as Kind of off kilter as things have gotten recently, they probably will change. But even even right now, there's still a fairly um, fairly traditional commitments um, on how history is written. Now again, that will probably change. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think this passionate uh, pursuit of history is not is not an amoral. Okay. History, if I can make that That's helpful uh, for me. When, when I consider this, because for me, in, in the being both pastor and having taught history for 15 years, there's, I can't help but there be some overlap between, you know, w with the two. But certainly, when I was teaching students that looked and sounded different than when I'm proclaiming God's word to a congregation. So, yeah, that, that's... Yeah. 
I think historians are not pastors, and I think that's an important um, distinction uh, to make. I mean, I, I don't teach. Um, I'm not a pastor, so I, I, it would be, I think, wrong for me to assume uh, the moral qualifications to make the type of proclamations that pastors do uh, as a historian. So, right, but there, I am thankful though that having good, solid historians like yourself and some of the other guys who, who, who write for Ad Fontes and, and also other publications, and, and yes, scholarly works can help us as we, can help protect us from becoming too entrenched in ideology. So right. it, 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 in a similar way, it brings in Again, Lewis talks about the the sea breeze of the centuries through you know yeah. through your minds. So our conversation perhaps has rendered this next question somewhat uh, unnecessary, but sometimes the, the discussion of schools of history is you know I've I've encountered that. Is that something that for budding history teachers, is that something they should care about or, uh, or, 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 I mean, does it matter? And if so, what is the, what, what is the takeaway? So, you know, so tell us what are schools of history and, and how do they apply to uh, studying and teaching? Schools of history don't come into, into my work that much. And I think because, um, I work at a teaching college, so so much of what I do is, is 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 teaches not a ton of theory. Now we'll do it sometimes, but I think some of it is it's just that you only have so much time. There's a lot right. to do, and so I think anyone sort of saying how much should I worry about theory and how much should I worry about school of history, you know, figuring out what the annals school is or, uh, or something like that, it's probably not a huge priority, um, just because you have so much else to do. Most of us don't work at big uh, you know, giant state universities where there's 60 people in a department and people can kind of worry about that. So I think most people who are act actively teaching history, I don't know if that's a, that would be a particularly big priority if I were commending them on, on, on where to spend their time. Okay. Well, you know, that is something I, I know I have, just in talking with people I've discussed is, say, for example, someone reads or comes across the, the old progressives like someone like Charles Beard right? in his view of the Constitution with, with, with kind of a, a, a Marxist, very, uh, very strong emphasis on social class and, and, and money and, and how it affects versus Forrest MacDonald who takes issue with that that view? Which you know, for right. for me, it's it's enjoyable to read two historians kind of going back and forth on that. But but I think what I'm hearing you saying is that it's not something people should generally, unless you just get your kicks out of this type of thing, should really pay much attention to. Yeah, I think you know we. Um, I think that you know I read a wide variety of, of historians from a wide variety of, of 
different sort of interpretive frameworks. And I think one of the things to think about is for a lot of historians, Marxism is an interpretive framework. Um, it's not necessarily you know, what they think about economics. Um, it often is. Uh, but uh, I mean, there's all sorts of interpretive frameworks. Um, some of them, I think, have a more sort of latent impact in the books uh, that, that are written through those um, frameworks than others. And so I, I would I would say I just don't know how much time uh, even I think about it. So, sometimes I do. If my upper level students um, ask questions, I do. But it's just when it's in surveys, it's not something I spend just a ton of time. Right, right. So we hear about conspiracy theories, and then there's also conspiracy history. Right. There are ideas about the past, some of which have very little basis in received fact, um, more in, in people's minds. So I'm, I'm thinking about something like in, in the church, restorationism, uh, you know, the, the, the view that the church at the time, you know, at one point just totally split off early and, and then you have Roman Catholicism and then all of its offshoots and then this other minor group who's just pretty much anyone that was not, that was ever persecuted by Rome, that they are the good guys. You know, we see this in the Church of Christ and and landmark Baptist and, and others. So, and that's just one example. But how, as a, as a historian, what principles can someone use to distinguish falsehood from what is true in, when they're studying history? I think um, some of it is reading enough. It's not necessarily principle, it's comprehensiveness. So, I mean, perhaps the better, best way to say it is the principle is comprehensiveness. Um, if you just read one person who says one thing, you probably aren't going to be able to figure out what's, what's true and what's not. Um, so I think it's reading enough about a subject across the literature of a subject. And you can sort of start to figure out what is, um, what is broadly accepted amongst historians what not now so a lot of people would say well what if all the historians are wrong about a given right well i think what you'll find out is that um even all the historians being wrong about certain things they're also really right about certain things um so for example let's say that i uh, all the historians um who are recording uh nazi germany obviously have very could views on uh, anti-Semitism, for example. Um, nonetheless, they're probably also recording things that are actually happening. Um, so a person having views you think are deeply distasteful um, and wrong um, doesn't mean you should agree with them about what they're distasteful and wrong about. But nonetheless, there's something in there that's probably documentable and document documented and verifiable. So I think if you read enough, you sort of are able to, you sort of get the, the aptitude of figuring out what those things are. Um, you can think about the 1930s and Europe, uh, the Civil War, um, all of these things where you have these kind of big grand moral questions that 
deeply disturbing sort of human sin, um, if you want to look at it that way, you can kind of figure out uh, what, what's true and, and what's not. Obviously, for Christians, it's, it's figuring out what's okay, what, what, what compares to what I know Scripture says about something. It doesn't even mean that you're, you're necessarily doing great at whatever it is you're reading about, but people can kind of figure out, I, I, th- I think, what's, what's, these, um, what's a true representation of history. I won't call it truth. Period. But what's a true representation of history and what's not? And again, what came to my mind was one must be humble in in reading because if if someone comes to any book, particularly one work that is recorded history, if you approach it with the view that this is pure garbage, and my only goal is to debunk as much as possible. I mean, there is no humility right. in that. So either you're coming to it for no good reason, or you need to change your perspective, it sounds like. Absolutely. And I think a lot of that is too is, is, is um, history is not a Bible. And so you shouldn't read history like you read scripture, and you shouldn't probably have the same presumptions about what you will find in history as you do in scripture and in some sort of holy text. Um, and so that, to your point about humility, I think that's it. You sort of have to, um, you have to take certain sort of blinders off about what you're doing. Yes. So a lot of historians doubt stories from the Old Testament, especially the stories in Genesis and such. They, they doubt many of the supernatural elements. So, and this is just a a kind of a practical question. At what point in ancient history, so I'm not just referring to the Bible here, but at what point in ancient history do historians begin to accept written accounts as valid? Does that question make sense? It does. I think one thing to understand is is that um, the Christian scriptures are not all one type of literature. Um, and so uh, the Psalms aren't history. Right. Uh, you know, the, the Proverbs are, are wisdom literature. Um, even thing, you know, the Pentateuch itself um, kind of divided. So some of it is understanding that um, the Latins and Greeks, Romans and Greeks, are writing differently in a different way than the Hebrews did. So, for example, um, the first few verses of Genesis um, are often read uh, as as sort of history. Um, John Calvin famously got angry with his students who were trying to sort of extrapolate the, what happened at the creation narrative. He got angry and he told him, shouted them on, said, "He who would be an astronomer, let him go elsewhere." Um, and the reason why he did that is because he probably understood that the, that the point of, of the book of Genesis um, is, is, is written in such a way that it's not necessarily meant to, meant to be a science account. Um, the point of the book of Genesis, especially if you read it, if you read about the, the days, for example, and each of the days begins and ends a bit differently than what we think of it. Um, and it was, and it goes like this. It was evening and there was morning, the first day. Now, if you're like me, you typically wake up in the morning. It's the beginning of the day. 
But the Genesis account hasn't switched. Well, why is that? Well, because the Genesis account is is true. I believe the scripture is inerrant, and that's true. But it's poetry. It's painting a picture of resurrection. It's not necessarily trying to get you to figure out all the scientific processes about the creation of the heavens and earth. It's getting you to realize that the creations of the heaven and earth is pointing to resurrection even at the beginning. Um, and so you read Genesis differently than you read a history book. Um, and so the question of, of I think, um, how do we how do we accept um, the Bible as true? I think is maybe different than um, the question of whether it's it's uh, it's a historical replica or not. Um, so, for example, we don't uh, questions over eschatology go go to this right. How do we read the Book of Revelation and things like that? So, I think the question of inerrancy and the question of whether the Bible is 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 uh, is historical are different. Um, I don't, uh, so for example, uh, the Genesis account and those things have different, have different meanings uh, to us than they do, um, especially if you're trying to read them as, as, as sort of mere history. I don't know if that makes sense or not. But you would not say that just because something acts like just because one can draw out, I mean, obviously, parables told by Jesus are parables. Right. He, he's not saying that there was literally a man that had two sons. Actually, his name was Bill, but you know, I'm not not going to include that here. So nuts. But on the other hand, just because there are certain things, like in the Psalms, when David is recounting the history of Israel, he's not just re repeating something that didn't happen that's merely oral tradition i mean so oral so a great way to think about this is to go to the initial point that um, scripture is written differently by different people um so why do we why do we feel like the gospels are trustworthy because they're written by greeks um and and by at least you know they're written by greek and or jews who have a sense of how accounts work in the Roman world in the first century. So uh, like, uh, St. Luke is writing Luke and Acts. And so he's writing these in a way that people who are reading it are going to be like, oh, okay, this guy's writing in such a way I'm supposed to understand this is stuff that really happened. Um, the author of Job is writing differently, um, for example. So uh, that doesn't mean that they lose any transcendent meaning. It, it simply means that um, they're being written to be read in certain ways. David is writing his genealogies or his, his recounting of the, of the story of, uh, of, of the Hebrews. In a way, Hebrews are going to understand, oh, okay, I'm supposed to receive this truth as binding. Um, it doesn't mean uh, that uh, he's writing a replica of history. He's narrating, if I can make that distinction. Um, no, mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that it's false, though. Just a mere narration um, doesn't mean that anything's been falsified or forged or anything like that. I think one thing that, that C.S. Lewis talks about the true myth, right, the idea of, of the true myth. Um, and so, for example, a great way to think about it is, what about King Arthur? Is King Arthur real or not? 
Well, is is there was there literally a guy running around whose name was King Arthur? Uh, no. But there was someone running around whose name was Arthur Castor and or someone running around whose name was Ambrosius Aurelianus, who did the same things we know, who probably did have a sword uh, that had been uh, bejeweled in a certain way by a Druid enchanter or a Druid, Druid sort of medicine man who was Christianized. Right. So I, I think it, it's a true story in that sense. Now, whether it's a, it's whether the King Arthur story is a strict replication of history right that is is different so i think some of it's understanding the text i think this is actually why you have to have a high doctrine of scripture because if those words are inerrant and if they're without error you sure as heck better know who they're written to how they're written and what they're being written for right so just in in the last couple of minutes here i'm, I'm going to because I already know what, what your takes are on this, but I'm, I'm going to give you opportunity to, to, to tell us about some of your contrarian takes on, uh, j- just to start with the Puritans, those men of and the separatists as well, yeah. of very high regard in New England who are revered as the founders of all that is good and holy in North America. And then those, and I'm almost verbatim, not quite verbatim, but recalling Peter Marshall's Jr.'s uh, thesis. But then those in Atlanta, or excuse me, those in not Atlanta, those in you know the lower Atlantic, Virginia, they were pure nominal Christians. So Dr. Miles Smith says to that idea, um, well, I don't like it for a couple of reasons. One is the idea, the idea that the Puritans are kind of special is a creation of the 1830s. It's really a creation of a man named George Bancroft, who was a Unitarian, who wrote this big grand, one of the first real kind of big document, that, you know, real scholarly histories of the United States. And he wrote it's like eight volumes. I don't think he finished it. I think it's 50 10 volumes. I only got the volume eight. Um, in the 1830s and he's the guy who sort of says well you know the puritans really create america they're the they're the center of the story um and the reason that kind of took hold is because obviously over the next 30 years you have the sectional crisis in the civil war and so guess what the south's defeated and they're really not able to say oh we're you know it's hard for the southerners to say we're the center of the story even though we lost and we're the baddies now um and so I think I think that's where you see uh, sort of the, um, the creation of the of the, the Puritan as American in the eight, between eighteen thirty and eighteen seventy or so. And I think the reason why it, it perpetuates is because obviously there's a lot of printing presses in New England. Literacy is higher in New England. There's more schools in New England. New England exports itself, where I live in Michigan, was is heavily influenced by New England. And so I think that that's what you see, sort of the, the, the historiographic imperialism of New England uh, carrying itself out. Uh, Virginia, its influence wanes during that same era. There's a wonderful book called Dominion of Memories by Susan Dunn uh, that basically talks about the sociological collapse of Virginia over a 30-year span at the same time. And so Virginia did have, uh, at the beginning of the 19th century, a real claim to have been sort of the heart and soul 
of the United States, but that's not the case by 1860. Um, mm. And it's certainly not the case uh, by 1870, because Virginia, by that time, was going to be split apart in two states by that point. So the last one is you speak of Flannery O'Connor not with the evangelical glowing words that, you know, n normally people, when, when, when they when they refer to her, they light up more than her peacocks did right. in the noonday sun. So, so you know, you're not as big a fan of her, but you do like in her, like maybe in her place, George Washington Cable. Yeah. Which is a name very few people know. So, you know, people can take or leave Flannery O'Connor, so I'm not as much asking about her, but I, I would love you to just you to give a brief introduction why someone should read George Washington Cable. And so I think they're kind of part of the same thing. So Flannery O'Connor, uh, I think, is a more talented novelist than a, than an essayist or a, and a short storyist. Um, I, I actually think Wise Blood's a pretty good novel. Um, I really, I, my my main beef with Flannery um, is her is her short stories, and I think that part of this is there's this real tendency um christians i think are sinners right we have to understand ourselves as sinners and so i think we have this habit of sort of um either really thinking we'll get past our sin it's sort of sort of beatific sort of almost roman catholic idea of, of cooperation with grace um or that we're totally our sin that all all we are is is that um, and so I think that inevitably somebody has sins. Most of them have some bad ones. A lot of them have secret ones. Um, and that's the nature of the Christian life. And pray that you'll have grace in those. Um, I think Flannery O'Connor tends to go to those extremes that I mentioned. Um, okay. And so a lot of times you have you have someone who is sort of the sum totality of all that's horrible about them. And their, their identity is almost everything that's horrible about them. And then there's other people who are kind of almost almost just, just innocent to the point of holiness. And I just don't think that's a very accurate picture of the way people are. I like George Washington Cable precisely because his his characters, uh, Cable was a, a writer in the late, late 19th, early 20th century. He was a Presbyterian um, uh, from New Orleans. Uh, and he he writes like a New Orleanian, and yet he's a Calvinist. Um, hmm. uh, so he's a fascinating guy. I think in some ways he's a he and Flannery O'Connor interesting inversion of each other. Um, Cable writes stories that have just as dark of characters as Flannery O'Connor does, but they're far more complex. Um, you you you're sort of left sort of like scratching your head, going like, well, that person's kind of a mess, but they're kind of impressive. Um, and I think there's something very, very Protestant about that, right? right? Luther's right. Kind of understanding of that. And so I, I think maybe that's why I'm drawn to him. It's because people aren't, it's just, it's, it's a little bit harder to just say they're all this, they're all right. their identity is not their sin and their identity is not some sort of sort of beatific holiness. They're, they're kind of normal messes. And I think there's this point where a lot of people normal messes so cable i think is someone who's worth reading he's, uh, he was also uh, very uh, much against the south's racial regime he moved to new england because of that um, right and so uh yeah cable's a fascinating guy who I, I i would like to see get more um street cred 
Well, I actually was introduced to him in an 11th grade. Uh, probably not because the state required it, but my my 11th grade literature teacher, who was the best lit teacher that I've had, certainly in high school and college, uh, she introduced us to Cable, and I thought he was interesting, and he seemed very much out of his own time, uh, a man outside of his time. Anybody who knows him, in fact, you're obviously an educated man if you know who Cable is um, in this in this day and age. But I, I think he he's he's complex, um, and I like that. I know a lot of people feel like Flannery O'Connor is complex, um, and there's I, I hear what people say when they say how big Grace is. Because Lord knows I need it, right? Right. Um, but uh, I mean, all, all the time. Um, but I think I, I don't want to ever get to the point where there's sort of where hopelessness is what actually um, right. becomes defined. And there and, and so Flannery's stories are not all hopeless. Um, right. I, I, I like I said, I tend to like her novels better than her short stories. No matter how bad a day that I have, I can always count on the Flannery O'Connor <laughs> antagonist being worse. That's that's right. That's right. It can give me a, a better view of myself than I probably ought to have. Right, right. So, well, Miles, thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you taking time to, to talk with us. Thank you.